Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Longwood Road Bridge in the west end of Hamilton is getting old and needs repair, but with no LRT, there's no money. What's the city going to do? Last year saw 20,000 drivers get caught by red light cameras in Hamilton. Is the next step even more cameras? And Bernie Sanders eked out a win over Pete Buttigieg in the primary last night, but will Mike Bloomberg swoop in to take the lead? Find out. We'll talk about that in the show today. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We have had a number of discussions about uh, the impact of the uh, provincial government's decision to cancel the the funding for the LRT project. Uh, A couple of days ago, we, of course, had uh, three of the councillors in here uh, to talk about that, Narendra Nan, Maureen Wilson, and John Paul Danko, who sponsored a forum that was held last night at Hamilton City Hall. One of the uh, parts of this discussion, though, that it's not getting a whole lot of play, and I think it should, is, is one of the side benefits of the program, aside from what LRT was supposed to do for us, uh, economically, of course, and uh, and even spiritually, I guess, uh, and if, from a transportation standpoint, was that when they dug the hole up to put the tracks down, they were going to replace all the infrastructure right along the route, right across the city, and do a number of other repairs, including the, uh, the Longwood Road Bridge, which I'm looking at right now as you and I are talking. Of course, we're at Maine and Longwood here with the radio station. Well, that's not going to happen apparently now because the government's pulled the funding for this, uh, which is kind of leaving us in a bit of a pickle. Maureen Wilson is the uh, counselor for Ward 1 in the uh, west end of the city, and uh, she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Maureen, thanks again for the uh, input. Glad you could join us today. Thank you for having me, Bill. Good morning. Good. Before Listen, before we get into this, how did your uh, session go last night at City Hall? Oh, it was outstanding. Um, uh, Joe Minikazi was insightful funny, brilliant, um, detailed, um, and it's certainly for uh, those of us who are there, and we will have the video online on my website and also Councillor Danko and Councillor Nan's website. It, it provides a necessary um, playbook in terms of facts and data that we, we need going forward when we assess and plan everything. Glad it turned out. I just saw some of the pictures of it uh, this morning, and uh, it looked like a pretty good crowd last night, too. It, it went very well. All right, let's let's talk about this, Maureen. I mean, we've talked about the the, the concept of LRT for many many years now, uh, and we've debated the benefits versus uh, the drawbacks that some people seem to still want to can- concentrate on. But one of the uh, the side benefits, and I thought one of the selling points, even if you're cool to the idea of well, is this the right way to go, is the fact that when this whole deal was struck, as you know. The province basically said, look, we're going to cover all the costs of the construction. So, in other words, you want to replace all the infrastructure along the route? We'll do that. We got that. Uh, you want to get that bridge fixed? You want to get the running uh, over here on the Fridge Street property, the Fridge Street extension? I mean, there were, there were a lot of projects that were not directly related to LRT that were going to benefit from this, weren't there? Indeed. So, if you, if you even want to step back a bit, our 10-year capital plan, so the city's plan for which roads are going to be um, repaired, reconstructed, which bridges are going to be repaired, reconstructed, um, which infrastructure is going to be replaced. Our plan has been built on the assumption that multiple millions of dollars of work has been budgeted for and was going to be paid for by the province uh, through the LRT reconstruction that was all folded into it. So the subsurface uh, infrastructure work, those pipes under the ground, those uh, bridges, those potholes, those roads, those bike lanes, those sidewalk repairs along the route, that was going to, that has been budgeted by the city as part of the provincial work. Now, when the province has come in and the premier has broken his province, his promise, um, that work is outstanding. It will, fa- it, we have to revisit and recalculate our entire capital budget, and we have no no budgeted money for this work. Now, I've seen so some uh, I've seen some social media response to this. I'm sure you have too, Maureen, this morning, saying, "Well, if the city had done their due diligence and done the maintenance on these things, and and there's an argument to be made for that, and that predates your time on council. I get that, but for the last few years, that's not been on the capital budget because they don't worry. They said, "Don't worry, the province has got that. They've already said they're going to do that. So, of course, you wouldn't you wouldn't budget for that." So, I mean, we've really been caught here in, 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 the, in the, the, the fallout, I guess, of this, this decision, which begs the same question that I asked the day that Minister Mulroney came here and made the announcement. Have they really thought this through about the, the ramifications? It's not just about an LRT line. 
Well, not only have we not budgeted for it, so I'll, I'll take that, but we don't have the money. We have a uh, $3.5 billion infrastructure deficit that grows by $250 million every year. So for folks who want to say, well, you know, just let it go, and would you fill my darn potholes? Okay, let's fill the darn potholes, but whose potholes are we going to fill, and how are we going to fill it? And then five years from now, 11 years from now, then what do we do? Because we we have not enjoyed any increase in value in our land to help rebuild all the things in our community that, that need to be rebuilt. Um, that was one of, the, um, one of the many benefits of LRT. It was going to enhance our assessment system so we can generate a greater value from land to give us that money to continuously reinvest and reinvest in our um, our recreation centers, our roads, our bridges, our uh, stormwater management. It's all connected, as cities are all always connected. So where do we go from here? I mean, the, you know, the bridge st- still has to be fixed, has to be, probably has to be replaced. I know we've been, you know, putting duct tape on it. For, I'm being facetious, of course, but mm-hmm. we've been doing minimum amounts of maintenance on it because it's a very expensive proposition. It's an old bridge. Uh, I drive it at least twice a day, of course, coming down from, from Mancaster and going home after my show here. Yep. Uh, yep. Me and tens of thousands of other people, it's one of the busiest roads and one of the busiest bridges, not just in the West End, but I think in the city, uh, because of the volume of traffic. Uh, let's face it, you know, McMaster is one of the biggest employers in the city. A lot of it folks is. use that bridge. It's got to get done. Where? How do you, you can't just shoehorn it in here now and say, well, it's got to go onto the capital budget right now. You've already got that money spent, whatever money you have left. That's right. And we already spent about a quarter of a million dollars on that bridge, just in your words, putting the duct tape on it. Um, it's the bridge. Um, I mean, the residents of West Hamilton and everybody who passes along Longwood um, has been, as I say, biting their tongue and biting their time. It's a deplorable road. It, it's, it's, um, it's filled with holes, cracks. It's, it's falling apart. But what was to be forthcoming was a completely um, reconstructed road. And not only that, a reconstructed road that recognizes there's many users of that road. So the hundreds of uh, kids who have to cross that Longwood Bridge to get to Westdale or they're on their way um, to McMaster, uh, it's fraught with risk. It's a single walkway. And in the winter, it's even narrower. And there has been uh, many, many years where parents have been waiting, okay, let's get this done, let's get this done. It's coming, it's coming, LRT is coming. And now it's not. So it, it is the state of the road. It's the state of the bridge. It's the state of our, our infrastructure. We are here to service people. That's the business that we're in. And we need to do it in such a way that they're as safe as possible when they're making their way across the city, whether they're in a car or whether they're on foot. You know, that's a very valid point, and I see that on a daily basis uh, as I'm going back and forth. We could, Like I say, we're right here in the corner, so I can see the Westdale students uh, coming and going from school. It's not a safe bridge for pedestrians. I mean, it was built, what, in the 1950s, I guess? It's, it's over 50 years old anyway. Over 50. Uh, if you were building that bridge now or rebuilding it as we were planning on doing, there's no way you'd build it. I mean, it would be designed for no. pedestrian safety as well. Uh, not unlike what you see on the King Street Bridge that goes over the 403 uh, that connects to Westdale right uh, by the cathedral. It's a different kind of bridge. Um, there are safety issues here that need to be concerned. And by the way, you mentioned it's a very small sidewalk, and there's only one sidewalk. There is no sidewalk on the other side of that, that road. So you've got, right. But students are still walking there. Oh, you've got hundreds of them. You've got hundreds of students walking um, to and from, and you've also got a, a, a growing employer there. At McMaster Innovation Park, and then you've got CanMet, um, and we're, we're seeing a, uh, a cluster of pedestrians along that that route. Um, and every time my mother comes to, to visit me, she says, "I don't like my grandchildren walking across that bridge." Well, I don't either, Mom. Nobody nobody would want their children walking across that bridge. So we've got issues. Uh, now, I know that one of the possible solutions, and again, I'm, I'm just going by some of the feedback I'm getting on social media, is that, look, at you got this this task force, and they're obviously doing some, some, some homework here, and they're going to come up with some recommendations. Why don't you just take some of that billion dollars and use that to rebuild the bridge? Mm-hmm. How are you with that? Well, that, <laughs> well that's the very point that uh, Joe Minicazzi was making last night. 
we have to clearly understand what we have invested in and where and what lessons we have uh, can derive from that. So if we just take that billion dollars, first of all, I, billion dollars is a lot of money, but it, when it comes to infrastructure, it's not a lot of money. Um, and we can. there's multiple bridges to, to repair. It's not just in, in Ward 1, and uh, city building is about, we're all in this together. So which bridges are in uh, the worst state? Who's using those bridges? But Joe's point was, if you have a finite amount of money to invest, just like a farmer, where are you going to and what are you going to invest in that yields you the greatest return? So you have um, surplus money to keep investing in the things that matter to your community, uh, additional bridges, more sidewalks, uh, roofs on recreation centers where you're leaking water on a daily basis. That's, that's smart city building. Um, that's what we do as, uh, as families. That's what we do as investors. Um, that's what we need to do as a city. So on a con- conceptual basis, you know, that makes all kinds of sense. But now we're down to the pragmatic side here. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do this? Uh, because you know, we've been reaching out to the federal government for God knows how many years right now. Uh, and, and by the way, we're the only G7 nation uh, that, that does not do this, that doesn't have a, a continual flow of money from senior levels of government. Even the United States, with all their financial problems, never touch that. There's always an opportunity for cities in the United States to draw from funds from the federal and state governments. Uh, we get these things every now and then. They come up with a program with a limited amount of money. Uh, Toronto and Ottawa seem to get most of it, and we get some of the, the entrails, I guess. That seems to be the way things work. But that's not going to change overnight. I mean, this is something that's going to have to happen now. And I'm, I'm not suggesting, I'm not trying to you know, be a fear monger here to say, well, the bridge is going to collapse, but it's in bad repair. And uh, we've already seen, remember 15, 20 years ago, when, when there was a, a number of bridges that were in bad repair right across the country that started to have serious problems. And we don't want to get to that point. But, I mean, we've got to have a, a, a discussion about this, about our infrastructure. Uh, there's a number of enhancements we need to do here, Maureen, but some, somebody's got to come up with a plan, and a sustainable plan, for cities like Hamilton, like, like every city in this country, to be able to deal with this. We can't do this on the property tax base. No, we can't. And the property tax base was n- never supposed to fund that which it funds now. And we have to have an adult conversation. Um, we are an urbanized country, um, 90%, um, clo- close to uh, overwhelming majority of Canadians live in cities. Everybody acknowledges that cities are the economic engine of Canada, um, but we are <laughs> giving it meager, we're giving city meager, unpredictable uh, sources of revenues to invest in the kind of infrastructure that makes them healthy, that makes them um, competitive, that makes them sustainable. Um, and you can't do that off the property tax, which is a both a regressive um, source of um, revenue and it's also inelastic. So when times are tough, it it doesn't shrink or grow uh, the way that we we need it to 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 shrink or grow, and uh, we're falling behind. We should mention, by the way, too. I know we're doing a lot of discussion here about about the Longwood Bridge, as we should be. Uh, and that was the focus of a uh, couple of the news stories that have filtered through about this. Uh, but this is a much bigger problem. As I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, Maureen, uh, we're talking about infrastructure replacement all along that line, the proposed LRT line, that was supposed to all be redone at the government's cost. Uh, that falls back to the municipality right now. Now, you don't have to do it all at once, so I understand that, but it's all going to have to get done. And then all of a sudden, that really messes up your capital budget plan for God knows how many years. Well, it has messed it up. Let's just get that straight. It has uh, seriously messed up our capital budget and the assumptions that were made in it. So when people tell me, um, I don't care about the LRT, I'll never ride the LRT, and there's only one taxpayer, and I say, yeah, you're absolutely right. I can't make you care about the LRT, but if you care about your taxes, you should care about where we're investing our money and where we're going to get a return. Uh, and what has worked elsewhere. So all you need to do is go up the road for about an hour to go to Kitchener-Waterloo. Their assessment base along that corridor where they have built their LRT has grown by billions of dollars because young, educated folks want to live near light uh, rail transit and properties want to be built along light rail transit. So we have some dormant land that's underperforming. We need to inflame it with a serious um, 
investment, and and that comes in the form of LRT. So if I can't, I, I, if I can't get you to love public transit, that's fine. Uh, but if you care about your taxes, you should care about LRT. And to the folks out there who are saying, well, um, it's just going to increase my taxes, I'm saying to you, no. One, two, uh, you're paying for LRT lines across Ontario. Your Ontario line, you're paying for that out of your provincial taxes, and that community is going to reap the economic enrichment of that line, and we're not going to. And that's the we're that's, provincial taxpayers. That's the reality. Yep. That if if you if you're dead opposed to LRT, you're still paying for it. You're paying for the you're paying for the KW line. You're paying for the the Ottawa line. You're paying for the for the the one that's going to be going up through Brampton. It's all happening because this is a government policy. This is a Metrolink's policy, and uh, and we we just got kicked off the platform with the announcement that they made back in December. But we're still paying for it. We're still paying for it. And as Joe Manicazzi said last night, he went through the um, the the plan, the province's plan for um, the Golden Horseshoe. And he pointed all the things it says in the plan, multimodal, high-order uh, transit. He said, you were just following the rules. You were just following the plan. You were doing what the province set out as its strategic objectives. And then they came in at the last minute and pulled the rug out on you. He said, I would be furious. Well, I think a number of people are. <laughs> Those that have an understanding of the of the of the the depth of of the concern here and, and the ramifications of this, because I heard the same argument for people that said I, I'm opposed to the LRT because it's going to make my taxes go up. Well, mm-hmm. they've canceled the project, and your ca- your your taxes are going up now even more because now yeah. you have to pay for all of these infrastructure things, the the replacement all along Main Street and King Street from east to west, and this bridge and the sidewalks and all these other projects that were going to get done is now going to be on your property taxes. Yeah, and only your property taxes. So the, the, the base from which those, all that work that needs to be done, the, the funding base is now just from Hamilton taxpayers as opposed to a provincial taxpayers. So you're paying for the work that was done in Kitchener-Waterloo. You're paying for the work that's going to be done along the Huron-Ontario line. You're paying for the work that's being done in Ottawa. Those cities are going to reap the economic benefits of that investment and have better transit. You're not getting better transit in terms of a high-order line, and you're also going to have to fund that subsurface work, those roadways, those bridges, strictly on the Hamilton property tax base, a much smaller base. And by the way, the inverse was true. I mean, the, the taxpayers in Ottawa and KW and, and Mississauga were going to contribute to the Hamilton LRT as well. I mean, and, and that's the reciprocal agreement. Yeah, okay, fine. We don't mind that because we're going to get one too. Well, we're the ones that are in, on the outside looking in now. Yeah, well, that's why we have a province. <laughs> and that's why uh, we have regions. Um, and that's why southern Ontario still is the economic engine of, of Canada because we have historically invested um, in the kind of infrastructure that can generate um, economic surpluses and wealth and serve people. But we have not been investing um, to, the, to the rate that we need to, and, and, and it's coming pretty clear right now when you look at the state of our infrastructure, our bridges, our roads, our recreation centers. Maureen, it's going to be interesting to see the official response from the city on this and, and hopefully the, the education that the province is going to have to go through when they make decisions like this. Uh, we're just about out of time on this segment. Thanks so much for this. I know we'll talk about this again in the future. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's an interesting study, and you may actually be one of these statistics. Uh, 21,000, almost 21,000 Hamilton drivers last year were caught by red light cameras in various intersections around the city. Uh, there are some busy, busy intersections here, and there are some people that are pretty crappy drivers, frankly, or I guess inconsiderate drivers, or dangerous drivers, as the case might be. I know there's a related story about some people concerned about the uh, crosswalk uh, right on Main Street in front of City Hall, of being in Summers Lane, that uh, a lot of cars zoom right through there. It would, by the way, the, well, we'll get to that in a couple of seconds. Uh, and there's some suggestion there should be red light cameras there, and probably in a lot of other intersections, too. Uh, let's let's talk about why these are there and the impact that they're having on the community. Uh, Jason Farr is the counselor for downtown Ward 2, where most of these cameras are located, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Jay, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. 21,000 people caught with red light cameras. Are you surprised by that? 
all-time high. Um, no, unfortunately, uh, because it's a problem, we you know instituted the red light camera program about seven, eight years ago now uh, in, in more fulsome ways. And uh, it has addressed the safety issues. We choose those intersections based on collision data, so we tend to put the red light cameras at those intersections that see the most uh, T-bone collisions, which are the worst types of collisions um, that we come across in terms of, uh, you know, uh, potential injury and, and, and fatal injuries even. So um, what we have uh, garnered from, you know, the increase in fines is a, ma- a dramatic decrease in those collisions. So that's the good, good news uh, on the red light camera program. Yeah, the the good news is that there seems to be a reduction in the collisions, but people are still doing this stuff, Jay. I mean, there, but for the grace of God, I mean, you know, there there, there are still people that are just thumbing their nose at at, at at the laws, really. At those intersections, not as much. So fifty to seventy percent, depending on the intersection where we have cameras, we see a decline in red light camera running. But you're right. I mean, there's plenty more intersections throughout our city and it, it certainly is an issue in this and other cities absolutely well you can see i'm sure from from your counselor's offices as you look out on the main street when you're at city hall jay uh and, and you know the concerns that were raised about uh, the stoplight at uh, summer's lane on main street right in front of city hall i think you're very legitimate time and time again you see people that race through a red light there uh invariably by the way to be stopped at the next light which is what uh, what less than 100 yards away on McNabb but you know be that as it may but they got an extra 100 yards i guess so that was well worth it for them to pay it's a pretty substantial fine Let, let's talk a little bit about about the money aspect of this right now because i know there was some pushback way back when when this whole program was initiated uh yeah it's a tax grab it's this and that and it's other thing um, <laughs> But as uh, former Chief of Police Glenn DeCaro always used to say, uh, he said, compliance is free. Uh, if you're not speeding, if you don't run the red light, you're not going to have to pay anything. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's the whole intent is to not only, you know, are we, you know, pursuing this issue to a greater capacity than we ever have before because of that substantive fine, which is about $320 when you add it all up, $50 victim surcharge and 260 fine and then other uh, POA costs. Um, but yeah, it's an awareness campaign as much as anything else as well. This is a problem in our community. This is how we, uh, you know, are, are, are attempting to resolve it. We, we do not decrease the number of red light cameras annually. We look at those high collision intersections and we add usually on average about five, uh, uh or so per year. And, and yeah, I mean, we're, we're obviously sharing with the public that we're very well aware that these are dangerous intersections and, you need to be cognizant of that, and hopefully that there's a prevailing, you know, message that we're sending as it relates to, you know, just safe driving in general. Like you said, Bill, really good point. You're racing to speed through one intersection, and particularly on the Mains and Kings, which are, I think I'm one of them, many people feel are unfortunate highway corridors through the heart of our city, uh, and the lights are timed, but you're just going to get caught at the next light anyway. So what... what What's the benefit of trying to race through when you know uh, with the timing you're going to get stuck at the next light anyway? It's, it's, it's sort of a, a pointless endeavor. As it relates to, to Maine, though, Bill, you know, one of the things that I see having, you know, been, you know, actively crossing there as a pedestrian for 10 years now often and also driving through, it's rush hour seems to be the big challenge for people. So it's not necessarily speeding through a red light, but you're, you're, you're coming onto a red light. It's been yellow for three, four seconds, and in front of you is nothing but a log jam. But you choose to, to, to go through the intersection anyway, and you get caught. Now, there's no red light camera at Main and Summers Lane, which was in the news earlier uh, this week. However, uh, it doesn't matter how slow you're going. You're still going through a red light, and you're still going to get dinged. So, you know, as I'm no Klaus Wagner, but I think he agrees with me from what I read in the, in the article this week, you know, you need to stop on that yellow and make sure that the, the lane in front of you is clear to pursue in a timely fashion and in a legal fashion. And I don't think that's happening a lot for whatever reason at Maine and Summers Lane, and certainly Edward Soldo and the staff in traffic safety particularly are having a look at that and quite possibly um, you'll see our next installation of red light cameras include that location. You you do add to that number every year, don't you? 
Yeah, in terms of uh, red light cameras, yeah. the number of yeah. red light cameras. Yeah, I think we're at around 24 right now. Bill, I actually tried to research that before talking to you today, but I couldn't open it on uh, on Hamilton.ca. But the number increases. There's more every year. And, again, we're, we're not arbitrarily picking intersections. A lot of our choices are based on statistical data where we're seeing collisions. And when we see collisions when you run a red light at an intersection those are the worst those are those t-bones and they cause serious injury and sometimes death so there's there's a method to this madness by the way we did look it up it's 34 uh, locations oh, right 34. now okay uh yep. in various places and not just downtown i mean there are a couple in other places up in the mountain and places like that too along upper james uh well, like but you said a lot of it a lot of it is happening in the lower city a lot of the, well exactly a lot of the violations exactly is there any discussion at all i mean they, these things are not inexpensive to install but they do seem to pay for themselves over a relatively short period of time uh did you see a a, a a day when we're going to be putting these in on a pretty regular basis, maybe more than five, because God knows they were, they're an effective tool. I mean, that seems to to come out all the just. We, I know people are going to say, how can it be an effective tool if there's twenty one thousand people doing it? I, I think the stats show, and this is what your staff told you, I think, Jay, uh, that when you put what a camera in at a particular location, initially, yeah, they catch a lot of people doing it, but eventually, after a while, when people start paying those fines, they realize, hey, there's a camera there, I better slow down. So you do see a reduction eventually. Yeah, and, and, and in some cases, some of these intersections that were prior to the installation of a red light camera, pretty egregious red light running, has decreased by 50 to even upwards 70 percent. So they're, they're definitely effective. As to your question, so, so certainly in my three terms on council, you know, there's been an attitude shift. You'll recall, Bill, initially what we had was I think maybe five to seven throughout the city, and we would rotate locations for those cameras. We didn't really start adding until about five, six years ago, seven years ago, uh, to my recollection. And so we, we rotated for some years. I remember, actually, I received a red light camera violation going to a morning show very early at Upper Sherman and I think it was Brucedale, uh, probably the first year when they installed just the five or six and they were rotating at the time. And I was driving the station vehicle, and Mr. Nevin Grant was not too happy to see <laughs> uh, that particular, and it was around 300 uh, violation in the mail. Uh, so I paid that, and I've never come even close since. So I'm one of those folks who was educated by many years ago actually receiving a violation. And it's not too hard to change, you know, your habits and change the way you think when you're approaching intersections and ultimately just driving. I mean, for me, um, you know, $300 was a lesson. But the other thing was that I learned was just leave five, ten minutes earlier so you don't have to feel you're in a rush. Uh, and and it, it doesn't ultimately radically change uh, the approach to your day and the timing of getting somewhere uh, when you when you factor in you know I need to be a safer driver I need to be uh, more cognizant of my surroundings when I'm behind the wheel when I'm in the city I need to drive the speed limits and therefore you know I tack on an extra five minutes leave five minutes earlier and in this city uh, you can get anywhere at a reasonable uh, amount of time there's not always a lot of congestion we know that from all sorts of traffic studies affiliated to things like LRT and and other things. So so you know it's just a it's a driver behavior. And absolutely, where we see these cameras, uh, we see these reductions in in collisions. And and over the years, I've seen counselors more. In fact, I would suggest it's unanimous at this point where we're more accepting of the program. You are right. Uh, early on. There was concerns that some constituency, and they were we were hearing from the constituency, this is a cash grab. I think that mentality has changed dramatically because traffic safety has become paramount on everybody's mind for pedestrians and obviously motor vehicles. Well, and we've morphed. I mean, let's face it, not, not only are we more accepting of red light cameras now, well, maybe not everybody, the people that get caught on a regular basis, probably not so much. Uh, but now there's some pretty serious discussions about photo radar uh, as, a, as a traffic safety tool. And you call, recall back in the early 1990s uh, the pushback that, that, that we got there. I mean, you know, when, when the NDP, the Bob Ray government, put photo radar in, uh, oh, yeah. and, and Mike Harris said, you'll elect me and I'll pull it off, and they did immediately. Uh, but now all of a sudden I think we're starting to see that it can also be a very efficient tool, and a lot of municipalities, including this one, 
are petitioning the province right now to let us try this as a pilot project. So uh, I, I think traffic safety has become such a key issue in this community right now that I'm, I'm getting the sense that councillors willing to be open-minded about any and all solutions to try to do something to mitigate some of the concerns. Oh, yeah. We're, we're hearing from the constituency at greater numbers each and every year, and it's of uh, primary interest to residents, whether it's in the neighborhood for neighborhood safety and folks want you know, uh, speed trailers, those signs that tell you how fast you're going. We have endorsed asking the province for photo radar. We even made attempts uh, unsuccessfully to call. You can have your photo radar in com- community safety zones, and we looked at the link in the Red Hill Valley through Councillor Marula a few years ago on declaring them community safety zones, but the province has rules under 80 kilometers an hour for those zones, so we can't put photo radar there for now, but certainly... Uh, Council has made an appeal, uh, and again, uh, definitely a majority, if not unanimous, uh, and all related to, you know, what we're hearing from the public, and that's you need to pay more attention to this, and you need to invest in it. And how do we invest in it? From the proceeds of things like the red light camera. So we have reserves through the red light camera that are specifically designated for further traffic safety enhancement. So if I want to put a speed trailer on Burlington Street, or if a, a councillor wants to put a speed trailer on, on, on Upper Kenilworth, or you want to put some calming at different intersections and, and create a more uh, a conducive environment and safer environment for pedestrians and vehicles alike, then uh, we have the millions of dollars that the red light uh, camera reserve garners to be dedicated specifically to those initiatives. So it's reciprocal. It, it's, it, it, it just keeps getting reinvested into that primary interest of uh, the people to create safer streets. There was, there was a little game that a lot of drivers were playing, and Klaus Wagner and I talked about this many times. It's, we know that when the light changes, uh, bef- when your light's turning green or red, uh, we know that there's about a two or three second lapse be- before the green light in the other direction goes. And a lot of people thought, hey, that's an extra three seconds that I can just race through the intersection, which, right. is, which is why these, these red light cameras are so important. Because uh, we have seen a lot of those collisions that have been avoided because the guy that's waiting for the light to turn green isn't going to wait the three seconds either. As soon as he sees that light turn red, bingo, he's going to start making his move uh, or her move. So we've seen accidents like this. Uh, revenue is a big part of this for those that want to get into the tax grab argument, which I think is a pretty weak one anyway. Uh, last year, $1.5 million annually goes into the city coffers as a result of this. But as you say, it gets reinvested uh, back into the program. So it's not costing uh, taxpayers, property taxpayers, anything. I, I look forward to the day, Jay, when we can come in here and say, hey, revenues are way down from red light cameras, because that means people are obeying yeah. the law. Absolutely. And actually, I'm going to ch- I'm actually checking now the 1.5 number. I think it's greater. I, I think maybe that's where the reserve might sit now. Uh, because we've been on a bit of a spending spree from that reserve, so not levy impact, the tax grab impacted. It's, uh, it, it's, I, I've asked every budget year what's our reserve at, and usually it's five to four to six million. So I'm wondering if that's maybe just where the reserve is sitting at now, because if you do the math, and I was never great at math, no radio guy is, Bill, no <laughs> but 22,000 tickets last year at $325 a ticket works out to about six seven million dollars in revenue so i you know it's it's constantly in flux that reserve is because we're initiating all these additional traffic safety initiatives for example and a big one is council resolved this term to go 40k on all residential streets well when you're changing all those signs and putting new signs in there's a hefty cost to that but it's one that can be accommodated without impacting the levy because we're using this traffic safety reserve that's uh, the result of our red light uh, camera revenue. So I, I'm wondering about that 1.5. I tried to get that answer before the show. I do believe, though, it, for my own anecdotal purposes, and I gave you the, the rough math, it's, it's, greater than, it's greater than that in terms of revenue. It just may be that we've spent quite a bit on, on citywide traffic safety initiatives, and so the reserve's depleted to that point. Exactly. Jay, as always, thanks for the time today. Greatly appreciate it. Much appreciated. Have a great day. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Busy day in U.S. politics yesterday. The New Hampshire Democratic primary. Well, there was a Republican primary, too. But I mean, come on, you know, who's going to challenge Trump? Uh, but anyway, also some news out of Washington also involved on uh, Trump. Uh, to uh, get into all this, uh, we are pleased to welcome back to the program Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. 
uh, who has uh, just returned from an extensive family vacation. <laughs> Anybody who follows you on Facebook says you guys had a blast, obviously. But welcome back. Good to have you here. Thank you. I stayed away from the news for a week, but I did post some pictures. Uh, before we get into all the politics and lots more, um, the, the news about uh, Christy Blatchford's death is something, as I watch on social media, has rocked an awful lot of uh, those of us in the media that knew her. Some knew her very well, others only passively. But what a what a journalistic giant. She is. And I remember the first time I found out I was doing a panel where Christy would be on it on News Talk 1010. My mother was like, you're going to be on with Christy Blatchford, <laughs> you know, because whether you agreed with her or you didn't, and there are a lot of th- positions she took over the years, which I didn't agree with. She was a force. You know, she was a trailblazer. She's the sports reporter who helped she, get women into the locker rooms. She didn't candy coat anything. She didn't. She was honest and direct. And the, so when I finally did the first panel with her, I recall uh, another panelist said something and she said, that might be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right? <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, <laughs> you know, if you're going to be on the air with Christy, you really got to be, you really got to know your stuff. So I, I got to do them quite weekly with her uh, in the last little while. And, uh, you know, she, if I got her to say, yeah, I agree with Laura, it'd be like a little secret thrill, right? Yeah. It's like, because she was so intelligent and honest and she really had the goods. I mean, she had worked her beats to the point, whether it was criminal justice or sports. Uh, she'd, she'd done her stuff so well for so long and written for every major paper in the country. And she was the top uh, pundit for sure, uh, known figure in Toronto media. To be even near her, you felt as though you got a little smarter and you, you were close mm-hmm. to something really brilliant. So she is definitely missed. She uh, wrote a no-holds-barred book, and for people in this area, they might remember the Douglas Creek Caledonia situation from years ago. Mm-hmm. And her book about that, about the way the McGuinney government handled that, and the OPP, uh, the way that they handled that, uh, was uh, it was eye-opening, really. And uh, that, But typical of, of her kind of journalism, though. Well, and you could see today the tributes pouring in in Toronto from politicians of all stripes who, when she was gunning for them because of a decision they'd made, made their life pretty tough. But they all spoke in glowing terms because she was fair, she was direct, she didn't play games. And uh, and one of our, our friends, uh, Lori Goldstein, made the point this morning that she worked harder than everybody else. You know, it wasn't just that she had a way with words or that she, you know, could swear like the best of them or she was flinty, as they're calling her. It was also that she was hardworking. And so she was a trailblazer for women in media. And I just feel lucky that I got to spend a little bit of time with her, even virtually over the microphone the last few years. Sad. 68 years old. Uh, Christy Blatchford passing away from cancer. We just had the diagnosis in November, too. Yeah, and you know what? Um, sort of being at the station where she was on twice a day, I was getting updates on the, they were visiting her, and I know Mayor Tory had gone in to see her, and and you got the sense that uh, this might be the end, although none of us knew a hundred percent. So it, it was a it was a shock that it happened today. I just left the station just when the news came out. I couldn't believe it, um, but the fact is that uh, I think she kind of went her way. She loved her loved dogs above everything else, and animals, and she had a lot of friends around her in the end. So, you know, I hope she rests in peace. Well, the tributes will continue to pour in, I'm sure, for the next couple of days for Christy Blatchford. Okay, let's uh, let's get into the Washington scene. Well, and more specifically, I guess, maybe, first of all, the New Hampshire scene. Uh, Bernie Sanders wins by the smallest of margins. No real surprise there. No, and these are neighboring states, and this is where he'd done well the last go-round. If Bernie hadn't had a good showing in uh, New Hampshire, I think people would have been shocked. That would have been the lead story. But the consequential story, of course, is what happened with the other players. Uh, yeah. Bernie's no surprise. Bernie may, you know, he's going to hit Nevada. He's going to hit South Carolina. Things are going to get real when he comes up against Bloomberg money on Super Tuesday. So I don't think that just because he's done well in these first two that it's going to be ultimately meaningful. However, uh, what's interesting is Mayor Pete Buttigieg coming in second, you know, a, a total unknown, really, and uh, and taking away a little bit maybe of Bernie's support and Amy Klobuchar. The, uh, what we have to remember, of course, is that we are pundits or we're, we're political um, uh, obsessed. And so we've followed this from the very beginning. But for America, a lot of people for the first time saw Pete Buttigieg or saw Amy Klobuchar watching the New Hampshire returns come in. And I think that Amy Klobuchar captured the moment brilliantly. She started her thank you speech coming in uh, so close to the top. She said, you know, I am Donald Trump's worst nightmare. I mean, she put that shot across the bow immediately up front. It was great communication strategy. And so I think what we're really watching for is um, Biden, who had a terrible showing 
is South Carolina really going to be that firewall? Is he really going to get so much support from the black community that it's going to foist him back to the top? Uh, I don't know, because right now Bloomberg is polling second with the black community after um, after Biden. So, you know, the, this whole thing is going to change dramatically when Bloomberg's money hits it and he is officially on the ballot at Super Tuesday. There's a, an interesting phenomenon that seemed to be developing last night, though, and, and Steve Kornacki, who does political analysis better than anybody, <laughs> yeah. uh, on MSNBC last night, was saying, he said, obviously, you know, Sanders was ahead marginally, but he says, you look at Buttigieg and, and Kobashar, who are a little more middle-of-the-road mainstream mm-hmm. Democrats, he said, if that was one candidate, that's 65%, Ted Bernie's 30. That's right. So the party is not trending towards him. What they're doing is they're split with these two people. I think that the party fears... Uh, a Bernie candidacy, not just because of the old establishment fight from the last go-round, which was messy and I think ultimately unfair to Bernie. It's the fact that he identifies as a democratic socialist. And even though that might mean a whole lot of things, it's not what people think it means. It's They hear the word socialist and they suddenly... Well, Trump has put a negative connotation to that. Well, of course. And so, you know, I think Trump effectively destroyed Biden with the whole impeachment. And, you know, because Biden didn't fight back fast and furiously enough, he didn't seem to have a real war room against Trump. And Trump, you know, minimized Warren into a caricature. And I think that she's probably done... And so he's, of course, going to try to attack the other candidates. Bernie is someone who can get big crowds like Trump, has that kind of populist appeal on the other end of the ideological spectrum. But the thing with Bernie is that his own labeling uh, has done the job for Trump. And so I don't know that uh, in a, I mean, in, you know, in a U.S. election, it's very unlikely that they're going to switch presidents. Uh, they tend not to. They tend to give two terms. It's very likely that Trump is going to get back in. So if there's any chance to stop him, it's not going to be someone who calls themselves a socialist. Jimmy Carter, I think, was the last one-term president. Right. And that was, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, it's very rare. And so you've got someone coming in 19, with that momentum. 1980, Reagan beat right. him. And you've got someone coming in with tremendous momentum in the economy with Trump. He survived an impeachment. He has completely complete uh, fidelity and solidarity from his party, super high ratings within the Republicans. He's got a fierce and loyal base, and he's shown himself to pretty much do anything he wants to change the playing field. So how are you possibly going to stop someone like that? Uh, I think this is where the Bloomberg factor gets larger and larger, because already Bloomberg has spent a half a billion dollars, or he's going to. Uh, He has been flooding the zone nationally on TV ads in every market, even has one where it looks like Barack Obama's endorsing him. Uh, And so I think that Bloomberg on Super Tuesday, if he does well, people are going to say, okay, this is someone pragmatically who can outspend Trump, who Trump gets very insecure about, which is an advantage. Uh, And if this is going to come down to money in a crumbling democratic process, then why not have the person with more money and and better ethics be the guy who gets it? So I think people might just shift pragmatically over to a Bloomberg ticket. And and some of the evidence of that is already starting to show. And Steve Schmidt, uh, the Republican strategist Mm -hmm. who worked on the McCain campaign, of course, uh, mentioned this the other day. The, the black vote is starting to gravitate towards Bloomberg, and, and he was asked why, and he said because they want somebody to beat Trump. Right, they want to win. They just they don't care who it is. Somebody they they thought it might be Joe Biden. Apparently, it's not going to be Joe Biden. Doesn't look like it anyway. So they're saying, okay, who's got lots of money and who's got the drive and who doesn't like Donald Trump? It's Bloomberg. Well, and so a couple of things on that. Um, one of the things, of course, is that when it comes to beating Trump, as you know, in politics, loyalty is only about who can win, right? The loyalty, the fierce loyalty to- towards Trump that the Republicans have shown is not because they like the guy. It's because he keeps winning. He keeps controlling and being... Uh, sorry, my uh, I thought my phone was off. Sorry, Bill. Um, okay. He keeps having this sense of, um, you know, he can keep winning. He keeps beating every odd. Trump is the guy who will go to any length to win. And so the the loyalty to Trump is the fact that he seems to be a winner. Remember, he said there'll be so much winning, you'll get sick of winning. And so when people are considering whether it's the black vote, which I don't think is a homogeneous community, but whatever vote looks at and says, okay, if we really want to get rid of Trump, if that is the number one principle of this election, then who can do it? Pragmatically, it's the person who can over-communicate, has their own knowledge of media. I mean, Bloomberg owns media, you know? So he has all the same skills Trump has, only he has a record as New York City mayor, both good and bad on stop and frisk and the big gulp and other things. Uh, But the fact is, is that he can play in Trump's lane. And I think that voters in the U.S. are going to look at it and say, all right, if it comes down to money, there's no way that anyone can outspend Bloomberg at $60 billion. Uh, So let's just go with a guy who has a chance of winning. Uh, and it'd, it'd be 
incredible to actually see that happen, but it is it is a possibility, certainly not a probability at this stage, that he's going to become a factor in this because he is inundating people with ads. The, and, and let's face it, those things do tend to resonate. And they're great ads. They're great ads. The one Bring Presidential Back, where he juxtaposes clips of Republican and Democratic presidents in great moments yeah. against Trump. Uh, my son saw that. He's nine, and he goes, wow, that's really simple, but what an amazing ad. I mean, it gets through. And you would expect a guy like Bloomberg, who built and amassed a giant fortune in the media and data business would be very, very good at this kind of thing. And it, so far, he has proven to be. So I don't think that um, people can discredit the Bloomberg factor. And also, it depends on the ticket. You know, I, I, Kamala Harris, extremely smart woman and doing very well in the early months. When Bloomberg entered, she quit immediately. She didn't drag it out. She said, I can't compete with that kind of money. But it also makes me, the cynical <laughs> operative that I am, think, hmm, was there a little chit-chat there that Could said, get out, let me do this thing and join me on the ticket. Can you imagine? a Bloomberg-Harris ticket? It is a possibility. I mean, they talked about a Biden-Harris ticket back in those mm-hmm. days, but of course Biden seems to be fading pretty fast at this stage. Uh, but it's it comes right down to who can beat the incumbent president. That's what it comes down to. And I know the stop and frisk thing in New York is going to be a big problem mm-hmm. for Bloomberg, but he's he's owned up to it. He said, I blew it. I made a mistake that was back then. And this, and uh, as opposed to, you know, the good people on both sides, he says the other guy hasn't owned up to anything. He hasn't apologized for anything. Well, I think what's telling is that Trump tweeted out that Bloomberg's a racist based on that, that audio tape coming out about Bloomberg in the stop and frisk from years ago. And then Trump removed the tweet because he said it was too offensive. So when was the last time we saw Trump have to crawl back after doing something like that? Yeah, well, that's kettle calling the pot black, right? It is, and he supported that stop and frisk policy as well. But I guess my broader point is that Trump rarely ever uh, chastises himself or reverses himself. I've only seen him do it twice, on the Bloomberg tweet and on after the Grabber video came out. He did a two-minute little video that weekend to sort of save his candidacy back then. So what does that tell you? Uh, my favorite line from Bloomberg so far is when a guy in Texas asked him, do you really think it's fair that this election might come down to two, two New York City billionaires? And Bloomberg said, who's the other one? Which <laughs> 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 is fantastic. It's just the way to get to Trump. He does a, a, an incredible job, and it's early days, I get that, and he hasn't even been on a uh, uh, one of the, the pr- preliminaries right now, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, he gets under Trump's skin pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, obviously, as, as we've talked about, Biden was the focus for Trump. As Joe Scarborough just tweeted uh, from Morning <laughs> Joe just a few minutes ago, Donald Trump just got impeached for going after the guy who finished fifth in New Hampshire. <laughs> Way to go, buddy. <laughs> right. uh, that's not reading the political tea leaves very well to understand that. And But and now he's going after Bernie mm-hmm. uh, for the same reason. But, I mean, I, I really don't think Bernie's going to be there at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Democrats have got to rally around somebody that can beat Trump. That was Biden's mantra when he started to come into this race. It wasn't, hey, I can be a great president. It's, I can beat Trump. Uh, that's what Amy Klobuchar is saying. Mm-hmm. I can beat Trump. Now they have to understand, get away from the rhetoric and say, who can really beat so, Trump? Klobuchar hit a pretty good showing yesterday. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, the pundits are telling me that she doesn't have any long state. She doesn't have an organization beyond the, the northeastern states and her home state, of course, doesn't have a whole lot of money. So they wonder about the viability of her staying in this and, and actually growing. Uh, that's what you want to see at this stage. Who can grow? I hate to say it because I think it's wrong, but we have seen the U.S. uh, heading headlong towards being more about money than any kind of rule of law or democracy. And we've seen Trump to take advantage of that and destroy a lot of conventions and the branches of government now seem to be less secure than they once were. And so I think that what we're having to deal with now, Bill, is the fact that this might just come down to who can buy the election. And that's a horrible thing to believe and to see. Amy Klobuchar, she could be great on the ticket. As a woman vice president on the ticket with someone like Bloomberg, uh, I think initially there were stories that that, uh, Biden thought Bloomberg was going to finance him all the way and so was very upset when Bloomberg said he was going to jump in. This might just come down to who can outspend Trump because people like Amy Klobuchar, and, and it really hurt me when I saw Elizabeth Warren and say on the Sunday shows this weekend when they asked her, what's your strategy? She goes, I don't have a strategy. It's a conversation. I thought that's not going to work with a guy like Trump. Uh, You know, you have to give Trump his due. He will keep changing the rules of the game to his advantage. And so I would think that the only person that has a shot at taking out a one-term president who's got a good economy behind him and total loyalty from his party and his base would be somebody who is better at strategizing and is better financed. And right now, the only person who looks like that is Bloomberg. you got about a minute and a half, two minutes left here. We always talked about this. We talked about this during candidate Trump's uh, run from the time he came down that escalator at Trump Tower so many years ago. Uh, 
it, where is the line where people are going to say that's enough? Uh, you know, we thought it was the uh, the Access Hollywood tape. We thought it was uh, the. Uh, there's a whole long list here. We, we don't have time to get into all of it. The latest one is is basically Bill Barr again acting as his personal lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, stepping in uh, to and and ruling the justice system from the White House, which is not supposed to happen. But Roger Stone's going to get a reduced sentence. Now they're talking about Manafort, uh, Flynn. I mean, it's going to get down the list. It's payback time, and he's got this list. Uh, basically, it's it's. There's no there's no rule of law here. They're, the three equal branches of government have been blown up. Well, Trump owns all three right now. You know, they, they've, they're stacking the judiciary. He's got his Roy Cohn-style lawyer as A.G. Barr. We've seen that since the Mueller report was, was spun before people got to even bother reading it. Uh, and uh, he's also got the legislative branch because he has total control over the senators. They, Other than Mitt Romney, uh, they all let him have a total pass. So now he's got carte blanche to do whatever he wants. And so he's got those two branches, plus he's got the executive branch, and he's not afraid to use it. I thought it was really telling when Bill Maher said on Friday night, you know, when this republic falls and it ends up like you know, ancient Rome when it became an emperor, there was still a Senate. You know, the buses still ran, if you will. It still looked the same. Uh, so I think what we're we get a lot of flack for talking about U.S. politics when we don't live there. But what we also do is have a bit of a perspective. It looks as though we're watching the frog boil in the pot, Bill. So what is the line? I don't know that they know that a line is being crossed. I mean, some do and they've been screaming from the hilltops. But I think a lot of other people get a nerd to it. They just think, oh, well, it's not that bad, and I can't stop it anyway, and then they boil. But do they understand the circumstances it is right now? Do they understand that this is a guy who's being influenced by, by Putin, that he's basically you know a puppet on a string? I mean, this is, this is the godfather all over again. Trump is retweeting videos of it showing election signs for him up to 2030. Uh, and then, of course, his son has ambitions after that. If we don't think that we are watching the making of a potential multi-year family control of the most powerful office in the world, then I think we're being foolish. And Trump has those ambitions. I think where people, and you know, we've had so many conversations over the years on this bill, right back from when he was running for the nomination, people mistake his his foolishness and his entertainment as somebody who couldn't possibly be nefarious in intent, right? Uh, well, look at his actions. Look at his policies on the border. Kids in cages. You know, look at the environmental rollbacks. Look at the tax cuts. Look at what they're talking about with health care now. Uh, this is somebody who is in putting in policies behind all the noise that are devastating for years. And so, yeah, you always hope that people are going to get behind a candidate or somebody who can actually take a run at him because the Senate had a chance and they let him get away with it. Well, and and that's one of the other stories, of course. We're talking about presidential runs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, who controls the Senate and the House is going to be a key part of this as well, even if Trump does get back in. Uh, uh, you know, a Mitch McConnell Senate, once again, basically gives this guy carte blanche to do whatever he wants. Yeah, they have to flip the part of the Senate that they ha- they can. Uh, I think that Democrats are foolish if they don't go down ticket with their strategy and they don't try to mobilize. And with Bloomberg's money funding some of that, maybe they'll have a real shot because right now Trump is doing really well with his fundraising. So this is a really, everyone always says this is an important election, et cetera, et cetera. When we look at the changes to the Democratic norms to see an attorney general change a recommendation on sentencing based on a tweet from a president, that just breaks apart the whole theory of equal opposite branches and, and how to control and keep a president, not an emperor, but a president. So uh, they are in dire times. I would argue they're in a constitutional or they're in a democratic crisis right now in the United States. Uh, more primaries next week. And, uh, well, who knows what Trump's going to be doing. Like I said, there's a long list of former Trump folks that are in jail right now that may well be out of jail or have not too long out into the future. Laura, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming back in today. Great to see you. Thanks, Bill. Laura Babcock from Power Group. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.